Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. This episode of the Retail Exchange is brought to you in association with Attentive. Drive sales with text message marketing. Visit attentive.co.uk slash exchange to see what Attentive can do for you. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast with me, Carl McKeever. As we present a special broadcast from our New York studio focusing on US retail. Laura Louie, Associate and Concept Designer at Global Architecture and Design Practice, CRTKL, calls into our studio for a discussion about the importance of reimagining physical retail for our new reality. We also speak to Neil Saunders, Retail Analyst and Global Data Retail Managing Director in Arizona, about the current state of US retail, consumer confidence and the outlook for Q4. Plus, we're joined by Amy Granfield, Head of Insights at Retail Display Specialist, Arkin POP International, to talk about beauty retail, following her own recent visit to the Big Apple and rediscovering New York City. So, welcome everyone to New York City and our Fifth Avenue Home From Home studio for personal perspectives on developments in American retail. Seeing images from afar of an empty Times Square, a dark Madison Square Garden or shuttered Fifth Avenue storefronts during the pandemic was eerie and disheartening. But people have filled the streets and stores once more. But it certainly doesn't mean that retail is out of the woods just yet. So what must retail do to give people reasons to shop in stores? And how will new thinking in store design and concepts pave the way for how we consider customer experience in the future? Let's find out by talking to my first guest, Laura Louie, Associate and Concept Designer at New York Office of Global Architecture and Design Practice, CRTKL. Laura, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'd like to start this conversation really by thinking about what's new and what's different now as a result of the pandemic, and specifically how have retailers you know, retuned their strategies to really look and embrace the opportunities ahead? We're seeing a lot of retailers invest more time and decision into the markets that they're entering and what stores they're actually pursuing instead of rolling out in every possible location. They're really taking the time to develop concept stores and prototype stores to ensure that that experience that they're delivering in a physical setting is really worth the consumer engaging with. So this is not just about having a, a footprint in every major town and major mall. This is quite a more considered proposition. Definitely. We're seeing a lot of brands invest into full stores so that they can test and learn with actual consumers before even opening or unveiling to the wide public. It's been really exciting to work with brands. We've built entire stores out of cardboard just to ensure that the journey is seamless end to end. And then that really influences our millwork and our rollout package based on things that we can figure out in, in real time and have direct feedback. If something doesn't work, we tear it apart. It's cardboard and reinvent it. And it's been really exciting that brands are embracing this as building materials are so expensive. Consumers are evaluating where they spend their time. Um, and where they're venturing out of their homes. So this goes beyond just location planning and a location planning strategy. This is more about actually how you design and engineer a customer experience. Definitely. We, we have an entire customer experience team. And as a concept designer, it's so important to partner with them uh, at the very beginning of a project and really figure out who the brand is, is trying to reach and why. And tailor the experience from end to end seamlessly to make it worth their while. So how has the pandemic then changed that thought process about, you know, kind of almost how you start with a clean blank sheet of paper to something that you can cut the ribbon and say, we're ready to go? Well, lead times for one and costs. But I do think that COVID gave brands a good amount of time to really reflect on themselves and and who they want to be and who they want to reach. And it's it's more necessary for them to be authentic in every single channel. And it's honestly been refreshing for us as new concept designers 
And COVID was, you know, a, a very painful time for people around the world. But I think one of the things that it actually did was it was very democratizing. Um, you know, the phrase we're all in it together was, you know, long used and uh, still, I think in many places still goes on today. But of course, whereas in the past, perhaps companies used to give their shoppers what they thought was the solution. Now, suddenly, the designers, the operators, the managers, the directors, they were sitting at home like everyone else and having to figure out, you know, how do we move forward from here? So I guess COVID in many ways was a great leveler. Mm -hmm. And it put everybody in the same space and actually saying, well, what do we actually need and what do we actually want? And I think the story before we all went into COVID was, certainly from North America, it was about actually reduction of fleet size. So, you know, whether that was coming out of major malls or whether it was big retailers like Sears pulling out and operating, you know, their operations entirely closing down. You know, everybody, it seemed, was trying to, you know, reduce their footprint, take stores off the high street um, and increasingly divert their operations online. Now, of course, COVID accelerated that process, but I think we're coming out of the other side now. And certainly from what I've seen in Fifth Avenue today, it would seem that there is a, a whole new wave of retailers which are taking up property and uh, with confidence opening new concepts. Absolutely. Um, so many brands have realized the importance of physical retail. And I like to think of it like online dating. You can only really get to know someone for so long online. But it's all about that face-to-face -face interaction and getting to know your customers from a tangible standpoint. That really makes a difference for brand loyalty, which we know is the most important right now as costs are rising. And it's so important to hang on to your customers. So for the brands which have made it through, those that have seen success during the pandemic and those which are forging ahead with new plans now, what do you think? is the thing that's marked them out as being, you know, successful within that strategy? Sadly, a lot of the big box stores are, are doing well right now as customers are looking for cost savings. But we've seen a lot of brands like Walmart partnering with the Queer Eye crew to create a line, especially for them, and trying to reach consumers or even working with influencers. You see influencers all the time marketing Walmart, uh, which, you know. So more creativity in their approach. Definitely. And, and, and more tailored to the customers that they want to reach, that they're thinking about them, that they follow the shows that they enjoy, um, that they know who they listen to in terms of influence and social media. And I think earlier in the conversation, you said that these brands are also, you know, experimenting more, whether that's with, you know, coffee pop-ups or small stores in neighborhood locations. You know, this is about brands who are prepared to, in a sense, step out of their own shadow and actually look to doing something new and different. Certainly. And brands are also working together, which has been interesting to witness. We've seen DSW, a large shoe warehouse brand, partnering with local pharmacies which would be a, you know, a typical health and wellness brand in order to serve those communities without opening their own physical locations. So it's been interesting to see which brands partner um, and how they can celebrate their, their real estate you know, together and also share a customer base. And of course, you know, initiatives like that are incredibly powerful, not, not necessarily from a commercial perspective, although I'm sure they clearly have their benefits. But actually, if this helps consumers, you know, these sorts of small but important, simple moments can really be transformative to consumers' lives. And it's all about thinking about the consumer and how to improve their day-to-day -day life by making their lives easier. Health and wellness is such a huge trend right now. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a trend. It's more of a movement. And we're seeing so many health and wellness metail, like medical retail clinics open in New York. And we've had the opportunity to design some. It's It's been really interesting that these formerly healthcare brands are branding themselves as a lifestyle and really connecting with consumers to help them feel better during a time that has been hard. And it's interesting you say that because I, I took some lunch before our conversation today and I thought, do I go and get a sandwich or do I get some Botox? <laughs> <laughs> and these are real decisions I, which people are making now. 
Hopefully uh, you aren't buying them at the same place. At least you would save some money with the sandwich. Yeah, and there was an awful lot of hand sanitizer involved in both experiences, I can rest, rest assured. <laughs> when we think about shopper behaviour post-pandemic, are, are we now again at normality or is normality still to come? I really don't think there ever is a normal. It's just all about evolution. Shopping will never be normal. We will always consume especially as Americans. I mean, we are consumerism at its finest and we will always consume something. I think the thing that will evolve is what we consume and how we spend our money and how we spend our time. We've seen a decline in spending money on experiences or technology or things that I think we're, we're already oversaturated with. And we're seeing an uptick in things like cosmetics or health and uh, wellness, any kind of self-care. And do you think this is almost a, a subconscious hangover from the pandemic, that people have recognised that life is short and perhaps it's time to invest in your own health and well-being and, 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 and take pride in your appearance and, and those kind of things? So rather than perhaps wasting money on dining out or trips or stuff like this, that it's actually about giving a bit of nurture and nourishment back to yourself. Mm -hmm. And connecting with those people who you truly care about. We're seeing in terms of advertisements, the successful brands are really connecting with what is important to their consumer rather than showing lavish lifestyles that seem pretty tone deaf in the, the current economic state. Uh, those brands that are being authentic and showing how they fit into consumers' day-to-day -day lives and the simplicity of it all um, is really showing success. So tell me how CRTKL are building uh, change for retailers. You know, in the work you do, you clearly bring in a lot of strategy, a lot of um, high-level thinking. Um, some of that may be uh, uncomfortable for the brands that you're working with. Perhaps people have been, you know, standing in the same shoes for a long time, um, maybe a, a degree of fear to embrace change. How do you help them to embrace the new and start to think differently about their business? Well, flexibility is, of course, key. We want to make sure that a store can look good at any capacity. Um, so that's always really important. We've also been seeing a lot of our clients start to explore online fulfillment centers for online shopping uh, within their retail location so that it's all in one place and they can strategize staffing based on that. We've seen and I think Nordstrom here in the US were very quick to uh, launch that initiative pretty much first out of the gate with that. Nordstrom has always been at the forefront of innovation. Uh, we've worked with Nordstrom for years and worked on uh, the New York location. My favorite part is the shoe bar, drinking a martini while buying shoes. Yeah, Pretty I was going genius. to say, my favorite part is the bar. I don't do the shoes so much, <laughs> but I definitely do the bar. Yes. What's well, the bar in the shoe department? Of course, yes. How, how very wrong of me. <laughs> but I think you're right. It, it's about... Um, trying new things. It's about the, the blending and fusing of different experiences to create something new and original. And, uh, you know, as an optimist, I was trying to look for, you know, where is the good in, in what we find? Is that one of the things that the pandemic actually did create for us? Was that willingness to try new things? Because we were all plunged into a situation which was completely out of our comfort zones. None of us had experienced anything like it before. And actually from almost adversity comes creativity for new solutions. Certainly. And Everybody was bored. Everybody was so bored during COVID that the minute we're able to get out and explore and connect and feel things, everybody's been very excited to do so. I have to say, I wish we'd used a lot less uh, candles during the pandemic because with the energy crisis that we have now and the potential for power cuts in the UK, <laughs> I just think we should have saved back some of those candles. We need all the candles we can get. <laughs> we absolutely do. <laughs> So look, sentiment amongst retailers, you know, regarding their physical storage states, you know, who's on the defensive, downsizing, or who's expanding and reinvesting? You know, where should we be looking for either the sectors of the brands, which are really going to be what we're talking about in a few years' time? Health and wellness is expanding like crazy, whereas we're seeing apparel stores and more luxury brands pivoting a little bit in terms of introducing pop-up stores or uh, even pop-up experiences that aren't permanent locations that could be just for a weekend. 
It's interesting you say that because I've noticed some of the, the brands, and I always uh, pr- mispronounce this one. So, uh, you know, correct me, please, if I get it wrong. But uh, Balenciaga? Balenciaga. Oh, I got it right. Um, they've been introducing some stores which are very stripped back. To look at them, you'd almost think that they were something from, from a war zone. And let's face it, there's plenty of inspiration around at the moment for those kind of images. But being serious about it, developing a luxury store is expensive. You have to be pretty certain of the payback. Whereas this is a brand which seems to say, okay, look, maybe this is an opportunity to reinvent the, the model here. Let's change perceptions. Luxury doesn't have to be all about the, the shiny, the perfect, and the, and the glossy. Maybe it can be about the raw and the stripped back. And we're seeing that in other sectors as well. Uh, Nine Orchard is a new hotel that's in the Lower East Side. And if you walked in, you would think you would be in the Upper East at Benelman's. It's beautiful. And they worked very hard to restore it back to its original beauty. And we're seeing younger generations really appreciate that level of comfort and almost luxuriousness, but in the form of quality and sustainability. So... Sustainable fashion, for instance, I think we'll see a downturn in the the fast brands. Yeah, because people have got this raised consciousness now, perhaps, of the impact of things such as fast fashion, whether that's on water use, whether that's on transportation, possibly on labor standards which are involved. Ethics are huge there. Uh, And the brands who are greenwashing, I'll say, I don't think they will last. There's not the authenticity that is necessary for a customer to really be one with with the brand. And that's what it's going to take as, as recession may ensue. And of course, these days, the consumer has a lot of tools online that they can check out what a brand says. And I think certainly from my own experience and my own group of friends and people I hang out with, they have an instinct to, you know, when something's a fake or not and when something is the real deal. Definitely, especially when we had more time on our hands uh, for this research. Our world has slowed down a little bit, and I think people are considering their actions and those impacts on the world in a more deliberate way. So if I was a physical retailer now, and I was kind of, you know, look, I had, let's say, bunch of stores, 50 stores plus. Uh, I knew I was going to have to make some investment at some point because, you know, we haven't done a lot to date. Where would you be saying I need to focus my time, energy, and more importantly, my money? Well, it's all about the data. Uh, I mean, looking to see where their stores are more successful and where the stores are, are most impactful and getting that footprint or that foot travel. That's absolutely where they should invest their money. And also the stores that are accessible. We're seeing a lot of suburban stores um, be more successful than urban environments because people are moving to the suburbs and that's closer to their homes. Whereas the New York Glitzy flagship is, of course, exciting and and does a lot for marketing. Uh, It's less well-traveled by those who actually purchase. Yeah. And of course, the last couple of years, you know, travel has been off the agenda for many people, slowly coming back. But of course, life in the office is perhaps something which will never quite return to what it once was. As you say, more and more people are working from home. So it's no surprise, perhaps, that brands are recognizing the potential of the suburbs to open up. Well, it's all about building community because these are places where you can live, you can work, you can shop, and you're able to walk with fuel prices. Uh, I mean, that's very advantageous for any young or old consumer. Um, It's been interesting to see people come together as a community because we do need to share the, the physical space and the consumer base. And for someone who had, you know, uh, previously come to New York maybe every eight weeks, uh, but not been here for the last 24 months. It seems like there seems to be a bit of a rebalancing on the public transportation, or is that just my perception? I do think as we have a little bit more flexibility in our work lives, we have more time to be able to walk or to bike ride, and we don't have to rush and get on the, the quickest train. You're absolutely right. And I think for me, the overall um, effect of that is much more pleasant. It's less intense. You still have the dynamism, but you don't have the stress. It was interesting. I was here during COVID to see it progress from empty streets into to what it is now. It, it really is beautiful. And it's just like, as I feel like in, in the biggest question in retail is, are physical stores dead? And they will never be. People love to be out and about. People love to experience things. People love to connect with each other and 
the brands that they're consuming. And I think if um, I'm right, here, here in New York, you mentioned it right at the start of the interview, uh, a big famous jewellery store is undergoing uh, a major re-envisaging at the moment, uh, due, I believe, for completion next year. That's one of your projects, right? We are working on the Tiffany flagship. It's been very exciting for the firm and to be able to see where they're going to go with such a historic luxury brand. Yeah. And with a new owner and a new parent, uh, and one that's steeped in luxury and understands elevation perhaps better than any, the the, the prospects for this store are mouth-wateringly tantalizing. I bet I can't get any secrets scrawled out of you at all about what's coming, can I? I I don't want to overstep, but there are 10 floors and exciting experiences to be able to connect with the brand in in different ways than than ever before and ways that can evolve um, and really encourage those repeat visits rather than a one-and-done visit. That's interesting you say that because when we think about jewellery and, and big purchases, you know, that's what they tend to be. These are kind of like historic life life moments, aren't they? Whether weddings, engagements, mm-hmm. you know, anniversaries, births, etc. But perhaps you're saying here that maybe there's an opportunity to reconnect with consumers more frequently. Definitely. I think the, the best thing that a brand can do is become a frequent revisitor within uh, their customers' lives. You never want to just connect once a year. You want to make sure that whether it's through marketing communication or community events like a fitness class, that your customer is always thinking of you and can benefit from connecting with you. Um, and of course, uh, as part of the LVMH uh, stable of brands now, the, the collaboration uh, opportunities here are, again, just exciting beyond question. And we're seeing like Louis Vuitton, the, the pop-up store, always changing. Um, I live in Soho and there is a pop-up store on Prince Street that every couple of months, they completely take the store down. It's just a white empty shell and rebuild it for a new collaboration or a a new seasonal feature. And it constantly draws attention um, because you've never, you would never just visit the store once. You always want to see what is the latest. They go so far that they repaint the storefront in Soho, which is not allowed by uh, typical building codes, but it's really exciting to see them make a splash. I think that's perhaps one of the lessons as well we can all take from perhaps some of those retail failures or where stores have kind of lost their way in recent years. You know, the 80s and 90s were all about that mass rollout of homogenized concept, another location, but the same format, the same formula. Mm -hmm. You know, having visited some uh, stores here in New York, I can see some of those brands which are still stuck in that way of thinking. I visited Gap Factory Store, which actually looks the same as a Gap store. And I thought to myself, well, if one is supposed to be a different kind of customer, a different kind of experience, what's the point? Definitely. And customers have so much choice now that you can buy whatever you need, really wherever you want to go. So they're really being particular on where they spend time and that they're enjoying the environments that they're shopping in. Clearly, we are in an environment now which is not so shopping friendly. So it begs the question, how will brands react at this time? Famously in the past, when business has got tough, people's response has been to stick out the red posters and all of those big worthy plans about brand building and values have gone out of the window. So I guess my question is, in the coming months, are we going to see a different definition for value? And is value going to be about price? Or will you think that brands have now learned that actually they can't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater this time around? We've seen that customers really want to trust the brand. And if they're delivering a a less quality product at a smaller price point, they're less inclined to want to continue with that product. I think value is is really in the sustainable quality of, of the product and keeping with a brand that you trust because they make a product that you trust rather than slashing prices to keep you around. And the brand also has to fit their lifestyle and and fit the way that they want to be perceived. Uh, We're seeing that people are really aligning with the clothes that they wear and, and, as you said, diving deep into what the brand is doing and how they're impacting the environment. And 
people really care about their self-image and what they wear and and what they purchase is a reflection of that. Yeah. And of course, we, you know, for all of us, we can see how, you know, the consumer, whether they're young or old, everyone is more conscious of sustainability. We're all more aware of the impact of our choices on planet. And I think brands are increasingly going to have to take this message, not just to their product development, but to their storefront too. And it just goes back to health and wellness as well. Um, People want to feel good about their decisions and know that they are purchasing products that are doing good for the world instead of harming it. And I think that mental health and that awareness of how you live can impact your, you know, state of well-being really makes a difference for for what people are buying. So I am lucky enough to have 48 hours still left in the city this time. Give me your top three things, stores that I should visit before I go home. What's hot, what's new, and what's now? Hot, new, and now. I would advise you to go down to Soho and, and perhaps get out of Midtown for a little bit. I personally love the Bala store. It is a a brand, it's a fitness brand really aimed for women, but they did a concept pop-up store that has remained open in Soho. And it's incredible. It's like life-size, huge, Instagrammable, shareable depictions of their actual products. There's room to try them. They host fitness classes. And it feels like a community in that the salespeople really make you feel welcome. My second, I would say, I always think there is fun to be had at the Nike House of Innovation on Fifth Avenue. Um, The ground floor changes every time you go in, much like the Louis Vuitton pop-up. It's always interesting to explore. Uh, Similar to the Soho location uh, that's on Broadway, I would definitely check that out. Rafa, they have the clubhouse on Prince Street. It's not new. It's been it's been there for a while, but it's one of my favorite Soho retail locations because it really embodies that community and connections and just feeling good about the place that you're spending time. So and I'm going to cut in here. Rafa is a UK brand. Can I fly the flag for her? Perfect. Perfect. I love Rafa. But most people don't know this, but it's actually owned by the brothers behind Walmart. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, look it up. There's always people outside. It's always buzzing with something. Bike riders are always meeting. There's a cafe inside and I go in all the time, even though I don't ride bikes or know nothing about cycling. Um, Yeah, now I'm going to make a shameless plug here because here on the Retail Exchange podcast, we actually have had an interview formally with Rafa. Wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, look us up. Go, go back. listen to it. Yeah, go listen. Um, put it into the search box there. Put in Rafa and it will come up. Um, it's a fascinating interview. And as it, as you say, it talks here and touches on uh, how experience is at the heart of what they do. They've been very clever over a long period of time now in building this thing called community. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a part-time rider, whether you're a serious rider, you know, I am a rider. I, I, I should say, I am a, I am a bike rider. And I am very proud to wear my Rafa gear when I'm doing it because you do feel part of that community. Yeah. And people look at you and you go, wow, cool, cool jersey. And I go, yeah, thanks. But actually, look at the effort I'm putting in here instead. That's great. One more that I would recommend is camp. Have you, have you been to camp? Now, which location should I be heading to there? The one I, the one I am less familiar with is the one which is in Columbus Circle, but I think it's also very good. I've I've only been to the Fifth Avenue location, but I love the the surprise of the back store and how they're really trying to connect. Can I just say it took me about four visits before I found the back store. Did it? Yeah, and actually, I That's had help. Great. I had help from a, a, a five year old girl <laughs> because. I was foxed. I could not find the secret door. So I thought, how do I do this? I, I need help. Ask a child. Yeah, ask a child. And brilliantly, she just led the way. I love that. But I love the idea that brands are trying to connect parents and their kids and make more of a community space rather than something that only appeals to, to kiddos. And it's another one of these places and concepts, I think, where time just disappears. And in there, you actually even forget your age to, to a large extent. You know, you, you seem to, and find the same joy in the, the toys and the apparel and the fun and the food that the kids do. 
It does. You get lost. I went in by myself and I think I spent 45 minutes just wandering around. I have no children, but I had a blast. Yeah. And the funny thing is I have no children either, but I think when I came out, I had at least three on each arm. <laughs> I think they saw me more as a cash point than anything Aww. else. <laughs> Laura, it's been an absolute delight to speak with you here on the Retail Exchange Podcast. Thank you so much for sharing some of your insights into the world of store design. Um, thank you so much for being my guest today. I've been talking with Laura Louie, concept designer at CRTKL Architects to the stars. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My conversation with our guest on this episode of The Retail Exchange is brought to you by Attentive. You can't have a conversation with this ad, but with text message marketing, you can. Attentive lets you launch and optimise a new mobile marketing channel. Interact with your customers where they are through personalised and real-time conversations with powerful results. Attentive drives billions in e-commerce revenue for over 5,000 brands globally. See what Attentive can do for you at attentive.co.uk slash exchange. Attentive. Drive retail sales with text message marketing. Many retailers across the US continue to face dwindling sales, struggling physical stores, growing debt and inefficient operations, among many other issues. The recent news from beleaguered American retailer Gap being just one example. As retailers wrestle with old challenges in addition to combating newly rising prices and a potential recession, I spoke to retail analyst and Global Data Retail Managing Director Neil Saunders from his base in the southwestern state of Arizona to assess the current retail climate for US brands and the outlook for the months ahead. So Neil, how is the cost of living crisis affecting the mood of US consumers in real terms? Well, I think people have definitely noticed prices increasing and consumer confidence has gone down somewhat and retail volumes have softened. But interestingly, there hasn't been a collapse in the mood of consumers. People are still out. They are still spending. There has been growth in retail across the whole of this year, and it looks like that growth will continue. So I'd say it isn't a massive crisis. It is more a substantial softening since last year and retailers have been reasonably satisfied with the results that they've seen so far. Interestingly, what has happened though is the bottom lines of retailers have been crunched and I think that's where it's come out a lot more. It's more on the profit side because retailers aren't passing across all those price increases that we've seen pain. The sales side actually has held up relatively well. And in your opinion, which are the retailers which appear to be in the strongest position? And, and I guess similarly, those which are most vulnerable right now? Well, I think retailers that have an essentials offer are generally doing better. So that's retailers with food, because when you look at the results from retailers like Target and Walmart, the food divisions are holding up sales quite well at those retailers. The retailers that are doing less well tend to be those that are more discretionary. Apparel has seen quite some pain as people have cut back. And of course, our old friends at the department stores are starting to see growth wane. And we've seen some retailers like Coles with results that can only be described as pretty abysmal. So there's been some pain there. The other category I'd say is quite interesting is Wayfair in the online market. Because if you look at online, it grew very fast during the pandemic. But now it's really come down to earth with a bump. And if you look at Wayfair as an example of that, sales are really, really poor. They've gone down, I think, by around a quarter. So there's a real deterioration there. So it's a very mixed bag of performance across the piece. And I think Wayfair is one of these brands which has been in very recent days announcing, you know, quite significant job cuts. Similarly, an announcement by Gap recently that it's about to cut 500 corporate jobs uh, has been made as it contends with growing costs and a weaker sale. Yes, exactly. Uh, what I think is interesting there, though, is you can certainly attribute some of this to the recent issues with the economy and a slight slowdown. But as I said, Retail hasn't slowed down by a tremendous amount. And actually, I think what these decisions at some of these companies like Gap and Wayfair 
signifies is that the business models don't really work that well. And actually, they weren't working well before the pandemic because Wayfair never made a profit before the pandemic and it's back to making huge losses now. So it needs to do something to try and square that circle. Gap, as we we know, has not worked for years. The core Gap brand has been in decline for you know over 10 years. And really what we're seeing is these companies enter this kind of more subdued period in a very weak state and having uh, having to take responses that are very contractionary to try and balance their uh, sales and profit lines. So I don't attribute all of this to the, the sort of cost of living crisis. I think that there's something that runs a lot deeper with some of these firms. It's a more sort of existential crisis at these retailers. It's actually been there for a long time. And, and, and I guess, really, this is always about, ultimately, the work that's been done within the proposition. Someone like Target has been working on its proposition now for, you know, a number of years recently in terms of, you know, really reconnecting in, uh, with consumers and refreshing its format, revitalising its ranges and looking at how they can upgrade the stores. I guess what we're seeing now is kind of almost the fruits of that success, a buoyant period during the pandemic where people were rediscovering Target, but now the hard yards have been done and what they're enjoying is those results in store. Well, that's exactly right. And Target's numbers in sales terms have held up much better. Um, And they've held up much better after, as you mentioned, a very long period of growth. Whereas if you go into Gap, to pick on Gap as an example, you know, I'm afraid the stores looked like they did in the 1990s and to a certain extent how they probably looked in the 1980s. Nothing seems to have moved on or evolved very much. And the brand is now extremely stale. Uh, It's boring. And unfortunately, in this kind of market where people are very sensitive to prices or perhaps a little bit more reluctant to spend money, it's the boring things that get cut out first because people say, well, we can do without buying that. We don't need to visit that store. So I think a lack of investment in a proposition is a real failure generally, but I think it's a very, very punishing failure in this type of environment because you need to stimulate the consumer, excite them, give them permission to spend, make them want to spend. And some of these retailers just haven't put in that effort. And now they're, it's the opposite of reaping the rewards. They're sort of reaping the sorrows of that failure. It's no wonder these retailers aren't doing well because the effort is not being put in in the basics. And if you give up on the customer and don't put the effort in for the customer, guess what? The customer gives up on you. As we now are looking towards a tightening market where people have got less disposable income, mortgage rates in the US are increasing tremendously. It's going to be a difficult Q4 perhaps for many brands ahead. Where do you think the outlook is? Black Friday is coming up, the holiday season is coming up. Where are going to be the winners and losers? And for those people which are still uncertain about what their prospects might be, what do they need to do to do the numbers? Well, I think overall the picture is reasonable. I wouldn't say it's robust, but it's reasonable. I think we're going to see some growth in the fourth quarter. Volumes are going to be suppressed in some categories, For example, electronics, I think, is going to do fairly badly outside of maybe iPhones and a few other gadgets. Also, home is going to be quite soft because it was fairly strong last year, so it's lapping tough comparatives. And apparel probably is going to be more subdued as well, especially in volume terms. But we are going to see other categories like food, for example, hold up fairly well. Beauty, I think, will do very well over the holidays because it's a nice small gift and a small indulgence. So the picture is is mixed, but it's reasonable. Um, In order to do the numbers, though, I think retailers have to do a number of different things. I think that they have to make sure that there's good deals for the consumer because the consumer is looking for deals and you have to have good headline deals. That's different to discounting everything. I think it's about having those good deals across the, the period of the holidays and really focused on different things. I think a great experience, especially with Omnichannel, make sure stores and online join up. And also making sure that when people go into stores, it's easy for them because people are quite concerned about the finances and everything else. The last thing they want is to have a stressful shopping experience on top of that. What they want to have is ease 
and comfort as they shop and also just to really enjoy the experience so they sort of get value for money from the experience as well as the product. So I think making sure that stores look good, making sure they're staffed well, that there's enough customer service there, those things are very, very important this holiday season. And Black Friday, it's been one of these things which has sort of ebbed and flow in terms of popularity. In the UK, it's all but fizzled out for the most part. Do you still see Black Friday as a force and something that we should be taking note of in the US? Well, in the US, it is, it's different because Black Friday is the day after Thanksgiving. Most people have that day off of work, especially if they're office workers. And that means there's an incentive to try and get people to come into store or go online to buy things because it is for many a holiday. So you try to draw people into the stores, a bit like Boxing Day in the UK. So there is a rationale for Black Friday and Black Friday is still a very big day. And if you sweep it into the cyber weekend that follows, it is a very big selling period for retailers. That said, the actual day itself has become less impactful simply because Black Friday now isn't so much a day as a kind of whole season. It's spread across some of the weeks before deals start to creep in. And actually, I think holiday shopping is going to be more spread out than ever this year. Um, you know, we're going to start to see deals pop up in October and run all the way through to Christmas. Amazon will have a deals day at the end of October. It won't be called Prime Day, but it will be a deals day. So there is already baked in this kind of pulling forward of demand, which is helpful for US consumers because people generally want to spread the shop, the, the cost of holiday shopping across a longer period of time because of inflation and, and cost of living problems. So I think Black Friday will be an important day, but the whole bargain and discount season is just spread across many more weeks before. And here in the UK, there is uh, already some concerns about perhaps a, uh, a bubble that's coming for consumer credit, people probably getting a bit deeper in than they really imagined, you know, looking at the kind of the buy now, pay later model. Do, to what extent do you think that, you know, this whole uh, switching out of the way that people are paying for goods and paying for stuff that maybe they just can't really quite afford, are we going to see a looming crisis that's going to really be coming to bite in 2023? I think that is a real concern because we're now moving from a position of worrying about just inflation to having to worry about inflation plus worrying about interest rates rises. And obviously, the Fed has increased quite substantially uh, rates, and it will go on doing so, was the sort of prognostication from the Fed um, at the last rate rise. So people are going to find that the cost of credit goes up. And we've already seen over the past sort of eight or so months, credit card balances in the US have gone up as people have used cards to sort of manage the cost of living. And now, of course, servicing that debt is going to become more painful. People also have mortgages that need to be repaid. Some of those are on variable rates and they will see uh, the cost of servicing that debt go up as well. So we are now seeing another bite, if you like, on consumer incomes, not just from inflation, but from higher credit. So I think 2023 could be a much softer year for spending simply because we do have those pressures on the consumer. So there is a worry. And then, of course, as you mentioned, you have the buy now, pay later sort of segment, which has ballooned. And I think in that part of the market, we may see more defaults. We may see more issues and problems because it's a very relaxed and almost lackadaisical form of credit that doesn't require quite as many checks. People sort of take it out very, very easily, don't always think of the consequences. But the chickens will probably come home to roost in 2023 on that. So I think we could see some problems in for that sector. And of course, there's also the prospect of more looming regulation because it is a part of the financial market that is being looked at by Congress and others. And people are a little bit concerned about it, I think. So it's a potentially better time to be a saver right now, but maybe for retailers, they need to start thinking about how the consumer is generally starting to think about their own financial environment. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as always, and thank you so much for your insights today for the Retail Exchange Podcast. Thank you, you're welcome. 
spend time traveling around New York and you'll find plenty of retailers and brands in the beauty category that share the values espoused by our studio guest, Laura Louie. A client first approach, great service and a positive customer experience. Amy Granfield, Head of Insights at Retail Display Specialist, Arkham POP International, recently visited Manhattan to see firsthand how beauty brands can win big by telling better stories in store. She joins me now to reflect on the status of beauty retail in the Big Apple and to explain why there are many reasons to be positive despite current economic headwinds. Now, we possibly crossed in an airport, I don't know. Having returned there again for the first time since January 2020, did anything really kind of really pop for you and anything really stand out? Yes, I think there were a number of kind of themes that came across. I think a move away from traditional display colours that would be associated with beauty was really refreshing and exciting in store. Whether it was Ulta or Sephora or even kind of on a much higher level in terms of um the Saks Beauty Floor, brands are really making their, a defined destination space. Even if they're on standard fixture for that retailer, they're really going above and beyond to kind of create a destination. And so they're not confused with their neighbouring brand. Um, and that was really exciting to see that brand definition. And it really stood out the brands that maybe hadn't succeeded in that area. Themes such as definitely an, uh, a leaning on theatre, specifically kind of what we're terming here as practical theatre. So making sure that you're igniting customer imagination and making them enthusiastic and excited about your brand, but also in a way that displays very functional and holds stock and works for you as a brand. Alongside yet yeah, bright colourways and new shapes and new materials. Really exciting. In the last couple of years has given everybody time to get creative. You know, people have had time away from the office. They've had time to think and brainstorm differently. With that, which of the brands do you think are really being quite disruptive, trying new things, doing things differently? Uh, and are there new brands out there which we can expect to look forward to for the UK? I think this is a really exciting time for beauty brands and beauty retailers. Obviously, uh, we know that in times of kind of financial difficulty, as coined by the Lipstick Index, the beauty brands can really succeed and see really good sales as that kind of affordable treat. Um, in terms of brands that we've seen in terms of emerging brands in the US market, a few in terms of beauty, but mostly I'd say in terms of skincare and well-being. Definitely in the shelves of Ulta and Sephora and even CVS and Walgreens, seeing kind of emerging skincare and well-being brands, which is really exciting. Some new cosmetic, colour cosmetics brands, but actually a real synergy with the UK market and the European market and the US market. So things like Rare Beauty, REM Beauty, they've all actually started to launch, though on a much smaller scale in retailers like Selfridges in the UK, at a roughly the same time as the US. Um, for me, a brand that I was really impressed with their in-store execution is Cosas Cosmetics. Now, they're a brand that have been around for a while, but they've kind of reinvented what they look like on retail display. And it was really kind of bright um, and really engaging and a really exciting display and re kind of defined it on the shelf. So, so much for the brands. Were there any particular districts or neighbourhoods of Manhattan that you thought were really kind of emerging as hotspots for doing things differently? You know, typically places where brands which are trying to establish a footprint might be looking for some new, different, innovative space. Do you know what? I think COVID has changed this slightly. So I need you to bear in mind that I railroaded many trips to New York to go to different beauty retailers in the number of times that I've been over there, uh, not just on work trips. And actually this time around, I didn't find myself doing that in the same way. So it wasn't, there wasn't the equivalent of the Bite Beauty Lab. It, we weren't going to the Glossier store. Instead, it was looking more at kind of retailers and what they were doing, as opposed to independent brand stores, because some of those were kind of real casualties of COVID, but also looking at this shop-in-shop -shop format that we've seen with Sephora and Coles and Target and Ulta, because actually those shop-in-shop -shop formats are taking customers out of main city hubs and taking them to kind of out-of-town spaces, and that was a really interesting dynamic with the beauty customer. What was interesting was to be out there as Ulta announced that they were re-looking at how they lay out their stores based on their customer insights. Um, 
And what will start to roll out is that merging of prestige to and mastige into one space. So instead of a kind of it being divided onto different sides of the store, suddenly we'll be able to shop beauty as we have beauty in our makeup bags. Um, because no one just shops prestige. We all shop a mix. That's how it is. And it can be trend led and it'll be certain products for certain days. And it's exciting and creative. And suddenly, actually, this is a retailer responding to that, which I don't think has happened in the UK just yet and would be a really exciting thing to come across. Yeah. And of course, inevitably in this situation, when you get the, the, the mass market or the mastige, as you define it there, which are trying to land and launch concepts, which have got some of the elements and experiences of the luxury brands, inevitably, it's going to force the luxury brands to have to raise the bar again and actually say, how do we go further? How do we do more? And how do we think differently? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It keeps everyone on their toes. And it becomes a really exciting environment for shoppers. And we know that beauty shoppers from mastige to prestige have the same expectations with regard to not only product efficacy, but also in-store experience and communication. People want to pay for products that do a job and that work and pay off. And how brands are communicating at Fixture is really important with regards to that. That was definitely something that was really interesting in the most recent New York trip was it wasn't about promotional price. If anything, it was about loyalty driven promotions or GWP promotions, but it didn't have the feeling of clearance promotions. And that is a definite difference between the UK market. Recently, I was out in stores doing surveys in UK beauty retailers and price became a number one driver of people's responses in purchasing. Whereas historically over the past couple of years and definitely pre-COVID, it was kind of level with other things such as brand values. I think one of the people surveyed said they want a treat, but they also really want a deal at the same time. And that was a a generic response from a a number of the people surveyed. One of the things that brands are always trying to do is to give customers a reason to really get in store. What did you see whilst in Manhattan that were those kind of people magnets, those drivers to really say, shop here rather than shopping online? I think it's about brand offering. Um, And I think there's kind of definite similarities with the US and the UK. And we know that the reasons people want to go into store are because often they want to try products. We know it's really this. I feel like every time we talk about beauty, we talk about testers. Um, so sorry that this is old news, but it's still as relevant today as it was as we were in pandemic and emerging out of pandemic. But actually, you've got to cater for testers on almost three levels with your customer. That's what beauty brands and retailers need to do to give customers a true understanding of product benefits, efficacy and value for money. Well, look, Amy, thanks as ever for providing us with some first class insight there in terms of the beauty market, uh, not just here in the UK, but more importantly, as part of our special joining together across the pond from Manhattan. Many thanks to our guests, Laura Louie, Neil Saunders and Amy Granfield. This episode of the Retail Exchange was brought to you in association with Attentive. Drive sales with text message marketing. Visit attentive.co.uk slash exchange to see what Attentive can do for you. That's all we have time for on this episode of the Retail Exchange podcast. From me, Carl McKeever, goodbye and thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.